From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. What's going on, everybody? This is Mickey Hellerback. I'm going to be hosting today. I am a writer, podcaster for Central Sauce, and a freelance for other publications like OK Player, MTV News, and WYPR Baltimore. I am here with a few homies. We got uh, Tyler Jones reporting live from Atlanta, Georgia. Tyler, what's up, man? I'm good. Uh hurt my arm a little bit, but I'm a, I'm a poet, writer, and playlister for uh, Central Sauce. What's up? How you doing? In pain. <laughs> yeah, Tyler is, uh, you know, really, really gutting this one out after a, a bit of a slip and fall in his kitchen, but we are glad he's okay and here with us to record today. And uh, at risk of him laughing through this whole introduction, we have Elliot Sang reporting live from New York City, New York. Hello. <laughs> 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 he made it through he's laughing we're all laughing we're making it through fighting through the pain uh you know enjoying this fall weather enjoying a few laughs uh, but yeah. we're all here doing our thing elliot and tyler are both uh writers and podcasters with central sauce as well uh tyler is now by the day becoming more and more accomplished poet And Elliot is out here uh, by the day becoming a more and more accomplished YouTuber and YouTube (laughs) journalist. Um, Check both of their stuff out via their social media. Elliot on YouTube, Tyler on all the new publications he's being published on for his poetry. Um, Just a quick, so I'll start with myself with the little kind of promo stuff from recent work I've done. I did a retrospective piece for OK Player on the making of Kaleidoscope Dream for the 10th anniversary of that album by, of course, if you don't know, Miguel. And I interviewed Miguel, uh, one of his engineers, Lance Powell, and Brian Warfield of the production duo Fisticuffs, who, who all three of them obviously were a main part of making that album, so definitely check that out. I've also, as I said at the beginning, been doing some work for WYPR Baltimore, which is the NPR branch in Baltimore did a four minute radio piece on um, the opening of a studio in the Hamden neighborhood of Baltimore, which highlights artists with disabilities and brings in work from all over the country from their kind of network of studios. Um, And just did my first uh, minute spot with the announcement of Artscape 2023. For those who don't know, Baltimore, uh, Baltimore has been home to for many, many years throughout my entire childhood and through now uh, of the, biggest u.s free art festival and it is returning in fall of 2023 um and i'm going to refer to that kind of spot a little bit in the uh piece that i'm talking about later um but uh elliot when we go with you is there anything you'd like to promote before we get started here yeah sure i mean it'll it'll connect with our topic today oh well my topic today specifically because um i have a video it'll be out by the time the podcast is out that's actually doing some um, some Marxist uh, analysis of the BTS situation. Um, it it's partially a Marxist analysis, partially just a conversation regarding their military enlistment, and we'll get into that. Um, but in general, my YouTube channel, uh, Elliot Sang, my name. That's where you can check out the stuff I'm doing because nobody wants to hire me to write for them anymore. So I I employ myself. 
Oh man. Well, you know, that's, that's the way of the future anyway. Uh, video content is definitely the future. So you're just ahead of, ahead of all those people who are denying your pitches out there. You all have had way more pitches denied than pitches accepted. It's just part of the whole game. Teacher. Tyler, what would you like to promote today? Um, I have, I have my poetry featured in a few journals, like Fami Down Journal, Chill Subs, uh, let me see, and a few others. If you would like to check my stuff out, you can look at my profile at, uh, on Twitter, where it's TajThePoet95, or on Instagram, Taj.the.poet. Um, life is looking good, I have some new stuff coming, and hope, and also be look out for my new poetry book, hopefully coming at the end of fall, early winter, Obsidian Sun. Thank you. Wow, new poetry book. That's an exclusive mic drop moment there for Tyler. Uh, And yeah, let me just run through the titles of the pieces we're going to be discussing today before I hand it over to Elliot, who will be going first. His piece that he brought to the pod today is South Korea stands to lose billions from making K-pop superstars BTS do military service. If you haven't heard that announcement, that piece is penned by Chloe Taylor, journalist Chloe Taylor via Fortune, who I don't believe we've ever brought in a piece from Fortune specifically. So that's good. It's always good to highlight a new publication. I will be uh, following up Elliot. Uh, with a piece called The Promise and Perseverance of Detroit Rap's Rising Stars. That was penned, um, and a lot of interviews went into that one as well, by Nina Ruhani via Billboard. Very excited to talk about that. Actually, funny enough, um, on a previous episode, I actually highlighted another piece by Nina via Billboard, which was a Gucci Mane cover story, if you listened to that episode way back. So I'm glad to bring her back to the podcast for a different style of piece that I think is really cool. And to close us out will be Tyler, who we're going to, you know, it's good to mix it up on the pod between written and video journalism. Uh, so we are bringing, I think, it, I believe it is our first ever highlighting of a Last Week Tonight with John Oliver via HBO um, segment. Um, and this was a like 20 minute segment specifically titled Tickets, which uh, as this is a music journalism podcast, you can guess for yourself at this point what type of tickets and we will break it down for you um but to start us off why don't i hand it off now to elliot please uh reintroduce your piece and break it down for us and let's have a discussion all right thank you so as mickey said my article is for fortune magazine called South Korea stands to lose billions for making uh, K-pop superstars BTS do military service. It's written by Chloe Taylor, who I'm not particularly familiar with. Uh, Fortune is a business magazine. It talks about finance and economics and business stuff in a lot of different contexts. And it's always interesting to me to talk about music um, from a economic and financial and business and material analysis perspective, because ultimately these things are the undercurrent of our music landscape is how people can feed themselves, how people aren't able to feed themselves, how some people are overfed, etc., etc. Um, what I'm going to do is first briefly explain the situation um, somehow uh, regarding BTS and their military enlistment. Then I'm going to briefly talk about why I chose the piece. And then I'm going to sort of hand it off to Tyler and Mickey to either make their comments about sort of their reaction to the situation and their uh, learning about the article or uh, opening it up for questions too because I know that this is a subject matter that I'm pretty intimately familiar with 
due to being a BTS fan of over three years. But for a lot of people, a lot of this is pretty confusing. Um, and there's a lot of things I think people are curious about. So we'll start with the explanation. Um, BTS are a South Korean pop group. They have seven members. They have made music for about nine years now. And they emerged within the K-pop industry. Um, particularly the K-pop idol industry, if you want to be that specific guy who's like, Korean pop isn't all K-pop. So, K-pop idol industry, um, people vaguely know what it is. It's essentially an industry inspired by Motown that has emerged in South Korea over the past 20 years, um, particularly over the past like 15, in which young people are recruited to companies to be trained in singing, dancing, and other forms of entertainment service um, and then are eventually debuted usually within groups to perform for particularly younger audiences and there is a lot of uh, different dynamics that are at play when people think about that um, it makes for an industry in which a lot of the music and uh, entertainment of the industry the media of the industry is quite often um very tightly wound very uh high budget um, and very aesthetically minded and that leads to some extremely interesting pop music when you know measured in the context of our western pop landscape which right now is usually like some sort of melodic take on a hip-hop sound or something really dark and edgy or some combination of the two um, and then you reflect that against south korea wherein the pop music is extremely um less ironic um, it's much more uh, it's it's much less ironic and much more uh, traditionalist almost in terms of what a pop song should see, sound like and feel like and how choreography should look and how the artist should look and that's for better or worse uh, and of course there's a material explo uh, exploitation aspect of it that people talk about a lot and it's a very sensitive topic in that regard so I'm not going to get into that aspect of it too much BTS emerged within that industry in 2013. They had a pretty unique style and approach with their lyrics and their themes. They were always talking about uh, social issues from the beginning. They uh, wrote their records, which some groups do, most groups don't, um, but they uh, were very much headed thematically by members of the group who had a collaborative approach towards what they contributed, uh, and they also very much had a sort of edge to them. Um, even nowadays, when people consider them a group that is much more uh, poppy and much more sanitized than they were when they came out, um, they still have these moments where they'll comment on social issues, uh, where, they'll, where they'll make a, a stance on something, or they'll be a bit rebellious about something. Currently, that includes them talking about the exploitative situations that they encounter sometimes in the K-pop industry, including music show performances um, and, some, and chart manipulation and things like that. So they've, they've done that in part because they've been extremely, extremely popular. How popular, it's hard to even um, sort of contextualize that to a person because on one hand, people are like, well, they're not as famous as Michael Jackson were. They're all fandom focused. Um, the fandom is like, you know, celebrates them, but they don't have much... Uh, you know relevance to a general population but then also the fandom itself is gigantic it's not just a fandom of like a million people it's a fandom of millions of people internationally that have a huge presence um, and that 
is a significant thing. It's allowed them to sell arenas consistently in every single part of the world. They're, they sell out Wembley. They sell out the Rose Bowl. They sell out the Rose Bowl so hard that they had to make extra dates at the Rose Bowl, which also sell out immediately. Um, and so BTS are super popular. And part of being super popular means you generate a lot of income. Particularly, you generate, you generate a lot of revenue. And so the ongoing discussion of their military enlistment has been quite controversial because, of course, um, as some people may know, in South Korea, a men be, uh, between the ages of basically 18 and 30 are required to spend at least 18, perhaps 20 or 21 months in the military within different factions of the military. Um, they can choose between one, and that, depends, that, that will determine what their t tenure is. And so... Um, BTS, like everybody else in the entertainment industry, has to do that military enlistment. The only people who get exemptions from that military enlistment tend to be people who the national cultural and tourism and sports industry of Korea determine are culturally significant enough to where they should stick around, right? Uh, and where they should not go into the military. And even then, they usually have to do basic training for a month and they usually have to do a bunch of community service. So, one might think that because BTS generate, as this Fortune article demonstrates, a shit ton of money for B or for South Korea's tourism industry, the cultural industries every year, that that would make them culturally significant enough for them to merit an exemption from the military. You know, if Song Hoon Min, for instance, who is one of the best footballers in the world, gets military exemption because he wins a gold medal, um, surely BTS for being atop of the billboard charts, for consistently selling out stadiums, for doing ambassadorial work for the government. Surely they're in that same category. But because these categories are less defined in this industry than, say, winning a gold medal at a competition for the national team, or performing a specific type of decorated um, venue, or a specific type of decorated style of music as a classical musician might, because there's no standard for this for pop musicians, it's just assumed that pop musicians at some point, you know, they have to do it because just because you're popular doesn't mean that you're culturally significant, da da da. It's a very weird conversation, right? Because it, it very much steeps itself in a traditionalist value of what is valuable to culture and what is not. And even if you are a pop artist that is extremely popular, that is extremely well-liked, that does a lot of ambassadorial work for your country and your culture and does a lot of work on different political issues like uh, mental health advocacy even if you reach that le level because you're a pop musician it is more diminutive than being like a cellist in a really important band or something and so this is the driving force of the ongoing conversations that have been happening in South Korea for about three or four years the industry uh, the particular um, ministry that uh, we were talking about earlier has had these ongoing polls. They've polled through different publications. Usually the polls say, yes, they should be exempted. The conservative ones tend to say, no, they should not be exempted. And the more centrist and liberal ones will be like, yeah, they should be exempted. Um, and it's been one of these things that despite the fact that the conversation keeps happening over and over again and certain politicians make it a big point to say they should be exempted or they shouldn't, the decision never ended up being made. Recently, the decision was made that BTS would enlist, and that comes after BTS did a gigantic concert, a Busan Expo concert, 
um, which was to advocate for them hosting the World uh, Expo in South Korea. Uh, it was advocating for South Korea to do that World Expo in a few years. And so they had BTS do a free concert in Busan, which they were not paid for. That was of a significant size and significant impact so that they could advertise the country, essentially, put on this big spectacle to showcase the culture there. This was done uh, in part through the push, which was not a very subtle push and not a very, um, <laughs> a bit of a manipulative push, let's say, by the far right government of South Korea, which has new been newly installed. There is a new president of South Korea. He's not centrist or liberal as the previous one was. He is far right. He is very much, uh, if you, he's like the Trumpish character of Korea, the Bolsonaro of Korea, in that he is very far right. He is very cozy to far right traditionalist values. He is kissed up to previous conservative dictators that are very unpopular in South Korea. And right now there are ongoing protests about him uh, potentially having been involved in a scandal, which is a whole other story. BTS do this concert and then the night afterwards, after the media has gone home, after the markets have closed in South Korea, they make they put out a statement saying, we have chosen to enlist. We're going to go. And that's going to start with the oldest member at the end of this month, Jin. That's October this month. And then going to be a series of them doing it after one after the other, after releasing a solo project. And then they'll come back and do group activities sometime in 2025. That was the announcement that they made. And now I, <laughs> I wish that that was a briefer explanation, but I tried my best. Fortune, uh, the Fortune article I chose had a particular statistic, which at first was inaccurate. Hilariously so, because what the statistics is, is that, and this was very heavily disseminated on social media, this was a big talking point that people were kept, kept um, talking about, was that, um, let me get the one exactly so that I'm not, yes. So the statistic is that BTS, between 2014 and 2023, according to some analysts, would have contributed 41.8 trillion won which is $29.4 billion to the South Korean economy, um, which it was a bit of a projection, you know, like going into 2022-23. Of course, <laughs> at first, this was uh, written as $41.8 trillion, which would have been a very different sum of money. Um, and some people did believe and do believe that now still is true because the article at first came out wrong but they corrected it, it is 41.8 trillion won which is 29.4 billion dollars which is still a metric shit ton of dollars for a specific music group not even an industry but bts being an industry all to themselves essentially generated that or have been generating that there's a lot of statistics in this article that continue to point to that for instance that they contribute more than 3.6 billion to the south korean economy every year that's dollars and the uh, hyundai research institute said that in 2018 which is before bts became even this popular and said that that is the equivalent to the contribution of 26 mid-sized companies at least that's what the fortune writer chloe taylor uh, posits here and so what that basically all comes down to is BTS generate a shit ton of money for South Korea. And this is one of the main talking points, as many South Koreans have uh, had a backlash to this news and said that, wow, this is not fair, that they, shouldn't, that they should not get an exemption. This is not fair because they literally contribute more than any of these people that do get exemptions. And now we're going to be without a significant factor in our cultural um, you know, gen profit generation. Like This is a big loss for our country. And so 
what I will do now after having explained that is ask you guys what your reactions were to the situation or to the article. And again, if you have particular things that you're curious about, please feel free to posit that. And let's start with Mickey. Mickey, you sure. go first. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, so I firstly want to say that I think it's really important. And uh, one of my semi-recent pieces was in this kind of realm too, to, to obviously this is a little bit more political, but kind of to do, to highlight pieces that are more on the business socio-political side of music journalism within our space too. This would be like a music business article, if anything, and slash political article. And I kind of did one before. So, and this is also a news piece, which we kind of don't highlight that much on the podcast. So it's always good to bring these kinds of pieces and minus the, the miss of, of the, the financial stuff. It's a very well composed business piece. So I wanted to say that first. Now, the thing that, that jumps out to me, especially within the, and we're going to be talking about capitalism a lot in this episode, for sure. Once we get to the third uh, piece we talk about as well. Um, and, well, it's also strewn through the second one in, in a way too. Uh, so it can be kind of our through line. Um, what jumped out to me is just in this late stage capitalism kind of existence. And obviously I have a very Americanized point of view. Like I'm trying to parallel the possibility of something like this even happening in America. So like the far right to all their whatevers are staunch capitalists, right? So in America, so the idea of like, uh, you know, an asset that is actually bringing in so much wealth to the country and having such a high percentage of the wealth to the country being pushed aside for years in order to serve military service just doesn't even seem fathomable at this point, like in, in America. So when you say kind of the stuff about how this is like a push from the far right in Korea, I guess my like question to you is, uh, as an outside perspective entirely is, is the idea of being a far right politician, quote unquote, in South Korea, a different set of obviously like with social issues, it's one thing, but this is like beyond kind of a social issue side. It's like more of a it really is like anti-capitalist in a weird way to do it because it literally, as the headline of the piece says, is going to lose the country millions of dollars. So how does that like dichotomy work with being far right, but also ma- taking a stance against something or like m- limiting something which is inherently anti-capitalist, really? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting uh, dynamic because um, I think this is where we find capitalism becomes a very... Um, uniquely complicated thing in that for some the generation of profits um is not at the end of the day i mean for most really it's not at the end of the day the core important thing um even in capitalism and for capitalism to be executed there is also a specific set of values that have to be sort of sort of upheld and sort of magnified to continue a sort of idea of what a culture needs and what the economy needs. I guess what I, what I, what I mean is that, for instance, both both parties in South Korea are very capitalist. Um, of course, the farther left you go, the less capitalist uh, sympathy there is. There were efforts by the more center-left President uh, Moon prior to this president, Yoon, um, who uh, 
he made some efforts to add a larger social safety net and to make working conditions a little bit better for South Koreans. But in general, nobody's stopping the inflow of capital, right? Nobody's stopping the, the, the goal of South Korea, which is expansion uh, financially, economically, expansion uh, technologically with a constant focus on becoming a bigger and bigger world power, which is a, a focus rooted in capitalism. I think where the far right stands here, um, of course there's going to be differences in every place where what the far right does, and there's all types of far rights, right? Where we can define this far right in uh, South Korea as being immensely reactionary and immensely sort of fascist adjacent, um, which is quite re re relatable to what we've got going on here. Um, a lot of the, the, for instance, far-right movements in the United States, as a comparison, are things that seem to compromise the idea of generating profit because they have these reactionary policies to particular cultural and social ideas with this focus on adhering to things being a specific way, a specific sort of traditional cultural meter that must be upheld, conservative cultural meter that must be upheld. Um, and that's where you get QAnons of the world who are actively, you know, disrupting a lot of things that are, you know, based in capitalist wealth accumulation because they have these extremely far right, extremely conspiratorial theories about specific people in power. And it's still far right, right? Because the focus ultimately is not liberation for certain peoples or acceptance or, you know, the ability to take care of other people. Um, it is an idea of people have to be destroyed because they are different because of all these things that I found on the internet. And so a lot of what happens here is the same thing. It is an active contradiction within right-wing parties in South Korea, to my understanding, that you have certain values of, first of all, just protecting your country, right? Like, go to the military, serve in the military, and everybody has to do it, so you have to do it. Nobody's better than anybody. An, uh, an important element of this is also the fact that BTS are essentially a fairly progressive um, entity in terms of their cultural status, not only in South Korea, but generally globally, because they have, not only because of their, their song themes, which a lot of people aren't really aware of, but because they're a boy group that wear makeup and dance, and their fans are primarily femme-coded. So because of that, anybody that's far right and that has these far right fascistic cultural values is going to have a reactionary stance of they should not get anything good so if it's the case that they want to get military exemption which bts by the way never really said they wanted they said that they will do their service from the beginning as they you know as their duty as a citizen it is other people sort of imposing that desire on them because of their value and whatnot if the idea, though, is BTS fans want BTS exempted, then that's wrong because BTS, you know, military strong, BTS weak, BTS got to go be strong military men. You know, it's it's very like two plus one equals five politics. Um, and it's based in these reactionary cultural ideas that are capitalist in the sense that they try to create this sort of fascist populist idea of the state and of the culture so that the power structure is continued and, and validated. And once the power structure is continued and validated, then we can get to accumulating capital. Um, so it's a very, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, that was the sort of conservative element of it. Um, I guess I'll 
well, Mickey, did you want to add something as well? Yeah, just it's so it's rather than thinking about it uh, financially or capitalistically, it's more just a simple exploration of pride is the death of reason. Yeah, in a sense, it's 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 very much a sense of um, we don't like certain people because yeah. they're gonna, they're disruptive, right? Um, and that's you know something you can find anywhere. Um, Tyler, I'll pass the mic to you. Hopefully everything's okay over there. Um, what I know that you know a lot more about the subject matter as well um, than a lot of other folks because you follow K-pop stuff sometimes. Um, and I would like to hear what your thoughts are on the situation if you have any things you're curious about. Yeah, I'm probably going to keep myself uh, short and sweet. Um, okay. Let me see. Uh, I've, I've been into K-pop since 2015. Um, Seven years, I, my first group I actually got into was BTS, Everything That Nature, um, era of like GOT7, EXO, 17s, TWICE, all that good stuff. Um, I do think it is fascinating to like see, once again, how it's, I, to, like I said, my comments is going to be more so like, oh, how art is valued, how this certain particular set of art is value, valued. Um, this It's, you can... Let me see, probably compare it to like, let me see how America, like if you just want to make, go off a far right dude, how Ben Shapiro, I think made a comment like a few years ago, it's like, oh, look at Beyonce's music versus like other music or uh, versus like more classical, more other stuff like that. Or I, I think he said like, um, I don't quit, I don't care if I misquote um, Ben Shapiro right now, I really don't. Because <laughs> like, uh, because. Personally, I don't, my views don't represent the rest of the podcast, but also fuck Ben Shapiro. But uh, let me see. Uh, I think he basically said how like rappers aren't real art as well, um, or rappers aren't real writers. Um, and you can say how like that far right mentality here also kind of like parallels to like over there, um, saying valuing a certain type of art and artists and how they're packaged to have certain value to a country, to the arts itself, and how people perceive it. Um, for me, as someone who is not Korean, who's not part of that culture, from my understanding, I, if it's if they were going to serve, they're serving. It's I'm, I'm, I accepted that fact. I'm have to go without some of my favorite groups for like, my, one of my favorite groups for like you know a few years. I, but from my understanding, they were all going to do solo stuff for a good stuff, a good while anyway. So I'm more so when I got the news that they were finally doing it, like they're like, oh, they are going to the military. I'm like, all right cool <laughs> it's like, I'm, it's like I'm, I'm used to it at this point if you're a k-pop fan you just go you just go through it like what's the name you're used to like what's the name your artist going to well more particularly the male artists because um I, maybe you did clarify it already i might have just missed it um female um artists do not like the women in the k-pop industry or just women in, in generally um south korea do not have to serve it's only the male um population uh, once again except for like those few exceptions and everything that nature or if you just if you're rich enough or rich enough you can just sometimes bypass it but um uh like i said for me i'm in the area of acceptance once again seeing how art is valued and, and or devalued depending on the um the lens that you're using it through can suck um jen drops a single light next week so i guess check that out <laughs> uh but yeah those are my thoughts yeah um mickey were you gonna say something as well Nah, man. Why don't Why don't you you give us some closing thoughts, and then we'll we'll keep this thing pushing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will finish by saying what fascinates me about this issue is that there are so many layers to it. Uh, even that discussion on how capitalism relates to it is like such a 
thick onion of layers of layers of ideas and cultural ideas. And so what I'll say um, and what you can look forward to in the video if you watch my video on the topic is a conversation about value, a conversation about that relates to what Tyler's saying as well. Not only about how art is valued, but how humans are valued um, and how humans are commoditized. And what must be extremely stressful for BTS is the reality that their situations in life, for better or for worse, are so much hanging on the whims of other people's valuations of them as a commodity, rather than understanding their humanity and letting them dictate things based off of that. And so perhaps the military is not the best place to be, um, or not the most fun thing to do, but if, if, if it offers them some place where they can at least take agency in their life and say no we're gonna we're gonna have some time to ourselves and we're gonna do this then that's something that i can support i, I support humans being okay you know <laughs> um but yeah let's transition because i feel like the next story is going to do really well with that thing too like what you said, Elliot, particularly about um, the importance of, of looking at how art is valued. And I think the piece that I brought today uh, specifically hones in on how uh, localized art with a localized sound is valued. So I'll get right into it. Uh, the piece, again, um, that I brought is called The Promise and Perseverance of Detroit's rap, Detroit Rap's Rising Stars. And that is written by Nina Rouhani and uh, brought to you via Billboard. Um, so <laughs> I realized semi-recently that I tend to, in life, kind of go through sequences of using words that I tend to really like. One of them <laughs> recently is like dichotomy. I talk about the dichotomy of different things. And in this expon explanation, I'll talk about dichotomy. But another one that I use a lot is or have been using a lot in recent months is the word holistic. Um, and I think that this um, piece feels like a very holistic as well as intentional piece about the importance of the represent of the representation of localized scenes of rap as well as being a precise breakdown of the importance of maintaining community even with individual rises of artists in smaller market cities. I really like how this piece hones in on the importance of maintaining a city's sound um it talks about the sort of rise of a specific crew of detroit rappers uh, starting out with icewear vezo going to baby money and then babyface ray um and how they kind of came up with a specific sound that's detroit but eventually rooted well previously rooted in california and then brought to detroit and localized in its own way and how for many, many years, that sort of street bred sound was not embraced by the bigger market kind of economies and how they they brought that <laughs> over time. They didn't sacrifice that originality and purity um, for, for the sake of those outside entities, um, even coming from a city um, that's particularly under resourced, which reminds me and we'll talk about this later of Baltimore, where I'm from specifically. Um, but I think. Ruhani does a great job of highlight, highlighting how each of the voices highlighted had to remain persistent and stoic in the face of rejection and doubt and how that eventually led to kind of flourishing careers that have this kind of cool, wait for it, dichotomy of staying local, but also using outside resources to sort of propel the scene while also still keeping the core of the kind of 
localized community and 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 uh, network um, working to kind of uplift Detroit as a whole. Um, yeah, this piece really to me, just to kind of close it out before I open it up, really felt like a love letter to the city. I believe Ruhani is from Detroit, and you could really feel that through the writing. Um, yeah, and it, I, you know, I love pieces that are writing about um, a patient unwillingness to compromise that eventually leads to um you know an upward trajectory for not just one person representing a a certain sound of music but a kind of crew of people um that was really you know they had to uh it it really kind of highlights how they just had to wait for the world to catch up to the potency of the kind of street rap that was that was being produced in detroit and um you know stick to their guns uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll open it up to the two of you. I think, uh, why don't we start with Tyler? What, um, what did you think of the piece overall and what kind of context can you give to, to your understanding of, of the Detroit rap kind of surgeons? I don't even want to call it resurgence. It's really just a surgeons from <laughs> T Grizzly first day out as is talked about in this piece to now. And it just keeps kind of continuing to rise and expand. Let me yeah. know what your thoughts are Tyler. I mean, for me, it was like really dope because like once once again, I always whenever I come uh, read an article and I walk away learning something about a particular region, sound, anything, I feel I, I, I automatically strikes a chord with me. Right. Um, and for me, who was unfamiliar with Detroit music, like the actual sound of Detroit, because for me growing up, all I knew from Detroit was like obviously like M, Royce, Big Shine. Um and like just other maybe like just guys that are or that had like you know hits, and so I honestly for me like I said outside of like those dudes that can rap rap like but like I didn't know that like Detroit really had a sound like that. I'm from the south. I was born in, born and raised in Texas, um, and then grew up and finished up like and then finished off high school and college in like North Carolina. Like I really didn't know Detroit like that. I was like East Coast South, and then I knew West because obviously I was growing up on Kendrick around the time. Um, so Detroit, seeing the rise of Detroit is like has been awesome to me because there was this whole sound that I was not aware of. Um, and obviously, I know like what's name Detroit had like house with his name, like uh, stuff as well. But like in terms of rap, a rap sound and like this authentic, like, like grimy, like, like shit like that, like that I learned about from Tigris. That was like, once again, exposing to me exposure to me of about the scene it was dope now going into these artists babyface ray j i swear vezo and baby money so the one thing i got from like their quotes and everything like that as well that the that that the writer was able to pull out of them was just integrity like the the need for this authenticity integrity and not backing down there's what we hear stories all the time about like how artists have gone up to record labels been like fuck y'all and like I'm gonna do my own thing, and but for them when they did it, it was it took them a long time. It took them a grind to like if I, like really get here, um, and it always shows like yo that was their plan. I'm not gonna. There's no other way but my way, and as you said, it just had they folks just had to catch up because like look at those list of names that like now are trying to either borrow that sound or like borrow those artists. It, that's it's it's crazy yeah so tyler you bring up a kind of cool point uh that i think is important to discuss when discussing this piece and kind of the general 
awareness and the the importance for someone like Nina Rahani to highlight the not just an individual artist who is having like a moment, but a community that's rising together on a platform like Billboard um, for, you know, especially a localized scene that is then kind of garnering national attention, but to kind of show the underbelly of the entire thing on this type of platform and to do it in a way from someone who has a deep connection to the city, I think is it's, it's important to talk about how important that that really is and how, um, you know, semi, it's becoming more frequent, but rare that is on these kind of big, what could be considered more mainstream music platforms, being able to kind of show, show this, this really um, rounded view of uh, the, a localized scene where rap, I think this is important to say too, rap is the most localized it's ever really been. Uh, and that I even remember in my lifetime with localized scenes that are really producing individual sounds. I don't know how much people are paying attention to what's going on in the Bay right now with people like, you know, uh, Larry June, P. Lowe, and even La Russell and that kind of sound that's being localized there that comes from tradition. Um, uh, yeah, Charlie, who is our, our editor, just said Kamaya, who I, Kamaya is Bay and not LA. You, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. She's definitely West Coast. Yeah. But yeah, I think that there's a real um, <laughs> an importance. And, and I hope to, you know, this that this piece is kind of a launching off point to have an even more uh, heavy focus in these kind of localized scenes uh, of rap from super mainstream publications like like Billboard. So, yeah, let's let's hand it off to you, Elliot. What what do you I, we've <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Charlie said Oakland. Kamaya's from Oakland. Shout out Kamaya. Um Elliot, what did, you know, we've talked about a lot so far, so I, I just want to kind of keep it open for you to talk about whatever has interested you in the discussion. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. I'm going to start, there's so many things that I can extricate, but I'm going to start by quoting the paragraph that stood out most to me and then sort of breaking down some of the core things that I am thinking about. And I'm always thinking about before this, but especially after this, it really took interest for me. Um, so it was one of the earlier paragraphs in the piece, the second one, where um, Ruhani, who does a great job in such a brief piece, sort of chronicling something that happened over a long period of time and getting personal perspectives on it. Um, she quotes Icewear Vezo, um, who says, we took our music to YouTube and a bunch of other places, and they're just looking like, is the song over yet? Uh, and then she writes, he recalls of industry folks scoffing at his no frills tracks, centering on the unfettered tales of Detroit street life. Then quote, he, they almost made me feel like it wasn't good. But as soon as you get back home, people say, man, that's that shit, says the 32 year old. While seated in Detroit's Russell Industrial Center, a 2.2 million square foot abandoned factory space. So I'm like, fuck it. We'll just be famous in Detroit because I'm not changing my style. I believe in it. So there's like 15 things to say about this, but it's really such a strong pe uh, paragraph to anchor the piece at the start because it speaks on all these different things that are present in this story and that are extremely relevant, not only for hip hop, but for our cultural landscape in general in terms of how art and how media and how even just careerism in general is impacted by capitalist forces, by neoliberal forces. Because for one, um, there is a tendency to atomize. Um, which that's that's my word right now, Mickey. I, you got words, <laughs> I got words right now. And I'm using the word Sorry. atomization a lot. Um, because I feel as though there is a 
it's a pernicious force that is in all of our lives that encourages us constantly to separate ourselves from the pack, to individualize, and to consistently react to what is the best outcome we can possibly get in a situation in order to make money, in order to level up. And this leads us to have this increasing sense of a lack of self-care and self-identity because all we know of ourselves when we follow this economic incentive is that we will do what it takes in order to make the money that we want to make. That's all we know of ourselves and we don't know anything about our own character. We don't know anything about our own desires or, or joys. We're completely lost. What you get out of a story like this um, in a deep human sense is a remembrance, is, a, is, a, is, is a, a, a tale that reminds us that sometimes we think of success as this one particular thing that we have to chase and not all these different things that we can have that are all in front of us at one time that many of many of the things we think we need to have to be successful are not things that are actually things we want or materially relevant for us the key here is that for icewear vezo and for the other detroit rappers they had something that they considered success that they are already satisfied with and so you don't get a sense from reading this billboard article as you might with other music feature pieces about other artists that this was the point of where they wanted to go that this billboard article is a significant part of their journey for them this billboard article is just a manifestation of something that they're doing that they're happy to go along with which is that the detroit rap scene is being magnified a bit more michigan in general and that this michigan rap scene is being now disseminated into different places and uh, becoming popular and, and finding its way into different places that you know want to market it now which is a huge turn point for them they wouldn't care i don't i don't i, I don't get the sense that they would care if that were the case or not, because their essential desire, the essential thing that they care about, their values, their interests are already being met by a form of success. As long as they, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, as long as they and their friends and the people back home and uh, other artists in their collective are satisfied with the music, are happy with what they're doing, that is the fulcrum for them. And if it ends up being a billion dollars for them or a hundred K, they're good. And I think this is something that every artist and really anybody who is trying to find a career for themselves needs to establish. You need to establish almost a bare minimum of what you care about having. And then everything else is a layer of, of happiness on top of that. But if at a basic level, you don't have something structured and simple that you want to satisfy, you're never going to be satisfied with any success that you get because it's all going to be all over the place and you're not going to have a set value system that you can adhere to. If you as an artist do not have a, for instance, a, a bottom tier thing that needs to be met in terms of these folks need to care about it these folks need to like it these folks need to you know this needs to speak to this type of life or to this type of culture if you don't have that you have nothing because ultimately you will be continuously lost trying to figure out what it is that you want to do this is advice for journalists as well because as a journalist you can get pulled in all types of directions trying to chase a bag trying to figure out what you need to do to get a job but if you can say to yourself hey 
like I can find money somewhere else as long as I'm doing this with my journalism then I'm cool whether I make a lot of money off of it or whether I'm essentially having to make my money somewhere else and so for them because they had Detroit because they were famous in Detroit and because they had the respect of their peers and enough material gains to be comfortable with then they're in a position of power when they get into that next stage when something when some sort of luck happens to say okay well I'm not going to compromise I'm not here to bargain myself down to something that you can utilize. I'm going to stand on what I have because if you walk away, I'm good. If you don't have that negotiation power, you know, in any sense, whether it's in a business sense or in any type of relational sense, then you're going to be constantly unhappy and be dragged around all over the place trying to meet other people's expectations so that you can receive something that doesn't ultimately mean that much to you because you never set a value system for it to begin with. So the story of Detroit rap is another way in which hip hop tells us this lesson. It tells us the lesson of find your first tier of things that you care about the most and let everything else work out from there. And so there's so many artists in this in hip hop. This is my last thing I'll say. Um, there's so many artists in hip hop that we don't know that somebody in some city, in some venue is like, that's the guy or that's the girl, the girl, or that's them, right? Like, there's always these artists that you come across here and there, and they may not have meant anything to you, or they may not have met a certain criteria of success that you found was important, but they are doing what they want to do, and they have the value and the respect of the people that matter to them, and you're going to find people that will go hard for them, and that is where art really finds its power, because that's a human connection. That's a genuine human connection, and it is not solely trying to meet criteria to get capital. So, there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the the phrase in my head that kept ruminating as you were kind of going breaking that all down, Elliot. Thanks for that. Is if you build it, they will come. <laughs> Shout out Field of Dreams, but it. I feel like this is a uh, a real kind of rumin. The piece itself is a rumination on that ideology. Um, that and you kind of talk about the Detroit that's broken down in in the piece with the the kind of natural infrastructure that starts to build over time with community um, and the necessity of that and sometimes that needs to come internally within the city itself too and Baltimore is a city as obviously the city I'm from that struggles with that a lot I just um, wrote a piece about uh, the announcement of of Artscape that I talked about at the beginning and the the real focus if you can go read the piece of the kind of relaunch and doing it is to make it more localized, to set up an infrastructure for people to stay in the city and build the infrastructure here and then do some version of what Detroit has done, which is have the ability once you've built the inter built the internalized resources to garner support from the kind of bigger markets to actually just fund resources into where you already are with your infrastructure rather than you having to reach out to their for their resources, because obviously the bigger market cities are going to even have more, you know, resounding resources and infrastructure that they've already built and you can use it as a collaboration but it's way more important to kind of build the infrastructure at home and i think that's really cool last thing i want to say to close this out um is uh just that i really fuck with icewear vezo so i'm really <laughs> glad that his voice uh was highlighted in this peach piece i've uh i've been bumping rich off pints three since it came out um, that's honestly, I don't know. There's so many, you know, Detroit rap projects that have come out in this sort of renaissance that they're having, but I, 
I, uh, I just really like that one. It might be my favorite kind of overall project from the entirety of the projects that have kind of come out. Um, and he's, that's like my, you know, I feel like with all of these kind of big scenes would have a sound, there's always going to be one that really sticks out to you. And right now I swear Vezo is that guy. So I'm glad he got highlighted. Uh, but yeah, on that, let's, let's move on to Tyler who can close us out with the final piece. Yo, what's up? Uh, so basically our last piece of the day is, is a video piece. It's just by way, provided to me help, um, by the lovely Elliot. Appreciate you, man. Um, it was last week tonight, um, John Oliver, simply titled Tickets. And when I got to watch this, I watched this like, it's, oddly enough, as soon as uh, I, I saw it, because I, I know, because I, I was so happy to know I was not the only one that had like a beef with Ticketmaster, bro. Like it, it, it is literally the bane of my existence. I, I saw, I think, I've, uh, let me see, if by the end of this year, unless I add another one to that list, I will have seen eight different concerts this year. Seven of those, seven of those eight concerts were all provided and I had to buy tickets through Ticketmaster. Or they took me to Ticketmaster and or Live Nation. Um, basically, the segment uh, John Oliver did, while he has this wonderful, of course, mixture of satire, comedy, and information, uh, was how Ticketmaster is essentially taking over the industry. And people have been complaining about Ticketmaster, the upsell of prices for tickets, why they're so high, and how, once again, how Ticketmaster is trash. <laughs> and... I found it also, once again, I've had this beef with Ticketmaster for a while, since really last year, two years, who knows, once again, like that's a forever beef, we, we'll, we'll still keep beefing, um, but it explained why it is so high, and when I can also learn something while also having a laugh, once again, as I was saying earlier, uh, I think that that piece is a success, so real quick, because we all watched the video, I'm, I'm going to ask you, Mickey, first. Like, what was your immediate thoughts? Had do you also have beef with Ticketmaster? How we're gonna beat them up? And um, how many concerts have you seen this year? <laughs> uh, I I don't know if I have any like main story of some time that Ticketmaster fucked me over particularly. So I can't say I'm on that side of the coin. I do want to take this initial moment when talking about this to continue the very necessary message for white British men to stop pronouncing Tupac Tupac, which John Oliver unfortunately did at the very beginning of this video. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say that. So that was my immediate reaction. All, but all jokes aside. Two packs of ass. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, so anyway, my my immediate sort of um, reaction or the thing that really stood out to me other than kind of John Oliver and his team's like elite ability to pick out just like the perfect fucking complimentary video clips of people <laughs> that are like within <laughs> the realm of the, the topic they're discussing, particularly the kids bop video of them singing Lizzo, which is one of the more hilarious uh, moments of music journalism that I've seen in this year. Um, I think what what really um, stood out to me is the sort of dichotomy that's interwoven. And here we go, using my word again. Dichotomy that's interwoven of like the the artist's 
agency within the space versus the company's agency within the space and the ability to kind of make choices. Um, I think the piece really hones in a, a lot on kind of the super incredibly successful artists um, versus like the not so successful artists, which is kind of a funny thing now. Like there's a lot of artists who can't actually tour uh, because and have had to cancel tours because of uh, limited resources. Um, but this really hones in on the kind of the the bigger artists who who have a lot of resources, but the the sort of dichotomy of where it lies between who is at fault for the high ticket sales. And it, at the end of the day, it all just kind of comes down to having to eradicate capitalism because the big thing that kind of I honed in on was him saying like from an econ economist perspective, like if Adele can sell a ticket for two thousand dollars. Like that's what the tickets were. So she could sell it, but it's like, well, but that just feels so horrible. And why can't we just like be better to people? And the reality is like when you break down all of the costs and different things and like who should be getting the money, should the artist be getting the money? Even if it's like semi exploitative, it's, if it's going to be exploitative anyway, maybe, um, so I think what, what this piece did really well and, uh, uh, continues to do with John Oliver is like dive head first into the gray area of like who can do the right thing. And the answer kind of at the end of it is you can try, but the right thing is sort of relative for who should kind of benefit or who should take action against the fact that Ticketmaster and the kind of separate reselling companies, like who should take advantage of the kind of gap between what people can actually afford and what something can actually go for. Um, yeah, I just think it, it did a really good job of diving headfirst into the gray area. Yeah, and how artists themselves are, <clears throat> excuse me, they are kind of like stuck between a rock and a hard place, as he was saying, because like, it's like, if you try to not use it, like, like he, I love how he also like used Pearl Jam, like the height of Pearl Jam's like popularity as like the example. Like they were like, basically, even if you have like a morally right uh, artist like Pearl Jam during the t height of their powers, trying to, let's say, divert attention from it, it's still really hard to because you, you have to have enough. Once again, as he, he even used the fact that I also heard, uh, heard John Oliver use clout, um, I was like, oh, that's surprising. <laughs> just, that's whoever was on your writing team when you were doing all that. Um, just uh, but once again, as he said, the clout to be able to divert, not have to use a Ticketmaster or a Live Nation and use like these other kind of like routes to not only make money, but also be able to see your fans and also cater to your audience to whatever location you're going to. Yeah. Um... <laughs> You know, piggybacking off of what you guys are saying, I would also like to interweave some dichotomies. Um, it's, primarily, it's, it's the damn word, <laughs> damn word, damn dialectically word. speaking. You uh, said interweave dichotomies levels. <laughs> you know, that's interweaving. Um, uh, trichotomies, maybe. Um, for me, I. Uh, so I'm not a person who attends as many concerts as I'd like to, and I think. This is partially why um, the ticket purchasing process, even aside from just the exorbitant prices for some of these artists, um, it's just generally a hellscape. It sucks. There's nothing that sucks more. And I just generally don't like to spend my time doing things that suck, um, especially because if I'm not like if I'm also going to lose a lot of money in the process, it just kind of sounds like the concert like I better be getting so much shit out of a concert 
in order to make up for all the value that I lost, that I lost in the process. And so I've gone to see BTS in LA, and that, you know, even as much as I love BTS, wasn't it wasn't rewarding enough for me to deal with that process of getting those tickets and then getting out there. Um, and with Bad Bunny, it barely it, it was it was such a good time that I had with my girlfriend there that I was able to to find a way to even make that somewhat more like 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 both of them were great concerts but looking back on them I almost recall the stress of the ticket purchasing process and the whole process of going to a concert in a big stadium anyway which is a fucking nightmare wait you Um, saw Bad Bunny yeah I did I saw Bad Bunny Yankee Stadium which is yeah he was great it's just also like I don't know. I don't like being in places where there's fucking 40,000 people and everybody's fucking crowding and there's piss on the floor in the bathroom and nobody knows where the line is and you don't have any fucking... Like, it's just so many things that I get super cynical and and, and, and uptight about. And... Yeah, like we these, are BCS fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, a, I'm a huge BTS fucking fan. And, and BTS, the, the, that concert, you know... The, army audiences are very good like so compared to other audiences like very respectful very good at uh, keep maintaining people's space and boundaries it's just it sucks right like even if i these are my favorite artists of all time the experience of just going to a local venue or club and seeing somebody who's cool perform and getting a beer and chilling is just way more enjoyable of an experience to me and it's because of these capitalist forces it's this idea that well it's bigger so it has to be bigger so it has to be bigger and then it has to be bigger and then that means there's more people and then there's more stuff at the thing and then you have to pay more for it and you have to wait longer and you have to go through this five you have to do six cartwheels in order to make sure that you got the fucking ticket on time and you make sure you refresh the page as soon as the the clock hits that fucking timer because if you don't the ticket master won't automatically refresh you even though you've been in the queue for fucking an hour like why why does it have to be like this and 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 the reason it has to be like this is because nobody actually cares about the human experience nobody actually has any compassion for the human experience as it relates to these extremely important cultural things for us because these corporations are forcing us to deal with whatever because we they know we're gonna fucking do it anyway they know that we're gonna cut our leg off if we have to to get a certain fucking ticket to a certain fucking concert. Oh, and so oh, oh man, okay. Like they know, like they know that like they, they like Ticketmaster is not going anywhere, you know. And that's the shit that really fucking sucks. And what I love about John Oliver in this piece in particular is that he, in, in addition to being really great at presenting information, he also always tries to offer something to the audience that they can do. But when the offer is maybe Congress could possibly pass some legislation so that this particular pardon isn't as bad, it really reminds you that our entire political system is actually set up for these things to prosper. And any little thing that we can get to make it better is going to be five years of effort for one second of comfort. It's never enough. And so the only way that we can resist it is by going somewhere else and and, and avoiding it. Of course, this isn't always possible. I want to see BTS again. I want to see Bad Bunny again, potentially. I want to see some artists at some big stadiums. The, the experience is a big thing, and we have to make our compromises, right? We can't just take a, a moral stance, of course, all the time, as much as we'd like to, because it's always going to be some shit that we have to do that's immoral. So I try to think about it for the audience to say, like, let maybe make a, a human emotional stance for your own well-being to say... 
the less I have to get involved with this bullshit, the better. If I don't, do I really need to go to the, this concert? Is it really that important to me? Do I have to go see 10 concerts? Or maybe I could go see five, or maybe I could go see two. Or maybe I don't have to see any of them and I can catch the videos afterwards. You know, make certain decisions for yourself that remind you that these institutions and these ideas of what a good time and what good experience and what good media is aren't as important and as anchored to us as they need be and that you are perfectly valid for consuming things in a way that makes the most sense for you and your well-being um and the first that's the first step i honestly think that is the first step to true resistance i guess i'll tyler <laughs> i guess we'll leave it with tyler to make closing remarks then now i was just gonna say um <clears throat> once again uh i do think it's like it's important to shine a light on these once again you could say facilitators of the music experience, music consumption experience, because it's there's always the, as Mickey would like to say, the holistic part of like art, <laughs> where it's like, it's just being made and it's meant to be given to the fans. It's supposed to have the spoonful experience. But then because we, we live where we are, uh, and we live in the time period that we do, it's not just that. It's music consumption and not only listening, it's going to see it. There's merchandise as well. And once again, ticketing and part of that live experience is something that we should have particular, we should be able to afford. And no art should be like held too far by a paywall. Um, talking to you, certain magazines that were after like subscribe or what's his name, use a whole entire pay thing to New York. Um, and, and, <laughs> and as we further get into these experiences, it's important that we discuss them and may, and once again, through discussion, we can either either a dismantle them or find alternatives. Yeah. And uh, the one good thing that that uh, John Oliver does in all of his videos is make sure not to just like shit on the people who are being bad, but to also offer what potential solutions and really, you know, unfortunately, the solution is never going to come from the corporation and their corporate interests, but it's either going to be from like some type of political action or from the artists themselves kind of demanding that the having enough leverage to demand that the corporation actually acts right, which he brings back again with um, um, Pearl Jam doing things of that nature, uh, I will give a little shout out to our friend Brandon Hill, even though I made fun of him and told him I wouldn't. But he was talking about specific legislation that they're doing in Massachusetts, where he lives right now, to kind of combat things like uh, Ticketmaster's sort of, you know, exploitative corporate policies when it comes to uh, ticket sales. So uh, I will give him the alley-oop to whenever he quote tweets this to give you all more information on that. But um, yeah, you know, obviously the big thing that could help more than anything is really direct sweeping federal legislation. But at the state level, there are potentially things that can be done as well. Okay, wrap them up. I'm going to go through the pieces that we talked about today. We talked about South Korea stands to lose billions from making K-pop superstars BTS do military service. And that was a piece uh, brought today by Elliot and written by Chloe Taylor for Fortune. Then I brought second, The Promise and Perseverance of Detroit's Detroit Raps Rising Stars. That was written by Nina Ruhani via Billboard. And then last but certain, certainly not least, what we just talked about, Tyler brought the video essay uh, via last week tonight with John Oliver and HBO that was entitled tickets about the sale of concert tickets and the exploitative natures 
of Ticketmaster. Um, thank you everyone for listening as we always do at the end of each show. I want to encourage small, uh, you know, independent writers at smaller publications to email DM us your work in case we may have missed it to potentially have it highlighted on the platform. Uh, we like to keep a good mix here of, you know, bigger publications, smaller publications, rising writers and established writers, uh, as well as video journalism. Send us your, you know, YouTube page video journalism that we should check out to potentially highlight as well. Um, yeah, that's, that's it for me. Thank you everyone for listening. Peace. 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 This episode of The Search of Source featured Michaela Back, Kaya Jones, and Elliot Sang of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Turner, of the VFM Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked by Basti. Thanks to Chill Music for the bit to use. It has been a Central Source and VFM Podcast production. Thanks for Basti, Chill Music, The Central Source, the VFM Element, and content covering the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.